Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that made them successful, all in the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I am your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts. Paperless Parts is the secure estimating and quoting software built by manufacturers for manufacturers. Communicate better, quote faster, win new customers, and keep your shop secure with their cloud-based ITAR-registered and CMMC-compliant platform. See for yourself why hundreds of job shops and contract manufacturers choose Paperless Parts by visiting paperlessparts.com. Shazam! This is Jay Jacobs. Welcome to the Job Shop Show. Finding and hiring new team members is always top of mind for shop owners. But what if you didn't need to hire as many people and could make your existing people more productive and at the same time made them happier because you took the drudgery out of their day, or at least some of it? Mark Bargloff, Kinetic Technologies, is doing just that. He has leveraged cobots, which are collaborative robots, into a shop specifically into welding and has dramatically grown his time on torch without adding lots more welders, which is quite important because he is located in rural Iowa and doesn't have a talent pool to pull from. Mark has an exciting story, starting a shop from scratch, achieving success by being highly focused on his niche, and then adding automation to augment the people on his team. Let's dive in. Welcome to the Job Shop Show, Mark. Thanks, Jay. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I am very interested in where our conversation is going to go because I looked at your background and it's not the typical guest. You have done a bunch of different things. I wanted to start out, though. I did do a little sleuthing checked you out on Facebook, and I found out that you have a trainer named Scout who pushes you to lift really heavy weights. Is that true? <laughs> yeah. yeah, he does. He's an animal. Yeah, yeah he's, a, he's a, yeah, he's, he's tough. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me a little bit about your lifting, because I, I like to lift, and what do you go for? What do you like to do? Yeah, I do a lot of power lifting. So I haven't done it competitively necessarily, but I just, I don't know, I, I picked it up later i was trying to <laughs> find something some exercise that, that was fun and and powerlifting just seemed to be a good thing i took to it pretty well so yeah and you have a background in the army as well you range of qualify that's quite an achievement yeah yeah that's i i out of it's funny cuz i grew up actually and my dad owned a job shop so he and did. yeah so it's like, you know, there's there's several things that I didn't think I was going to be when I grew up. One was a farmer and one was a job shop guy. Uh, I'm both now. So and then I, but I wanted to be a, an infantry officer. So I did do that was was a ranger and served in Iraq. I had my first kid and we decided to get out. And so I started in the engineering, started the, my civilian career and didn't exactly know what I wanted to do. So I've had I've had a, a good number of experiences and different looks at things. Yeah. Well, thanks for your service there. Really appreciate that. Sure. Yeah. You said you're a farmer and you have a day job at Kinetic. What does that mean by you being a farmer? Yeah. So we do row crop 
row crops in Iowa, so corn and soybeans. So I don't have any livestock. And I've been farming and having a, another career for, you know, the, the commodity cycles is up and down. It's like with everything else, but mm-hmm. it's really pronounced with, with row crop commodities. So we went through a pretty rough time for on the, just in general in farming for the last really 10 years, it was down. So I wow. spent time at building another career. So as I, I was, well, this job will be where at the end of that is I'm going to be able to farm full time. So we, we found a way to balance that. And before I started Kinetic, we, I, I was with ag tech companies doing product development. I co-founded a company called SmartAg that, that built driverless technologies for the ag sector. And so we, we ended up exiting that company. So we, we sold it to another company in, in the Midwest. And I worked for that company for a couple of years during the COVID times. So it was like, oh, this is finally my chance to farm full time. <laughs> and that didn't last very long. So I, I, I'm, I'm kind of a, I like to be busy and I like to have a lot of different things going on. So my wife and I decided probably best for everyone if I just start another company. <laughs> gotcha. How many acres are you guys farming? 1,600. Wow. That's a good yeah, chunk of land. Yeah, but you know, it's interesting how everything kind of overlaps with each other. So, you know, manufacturing, product development, agriculture, they seem like they're very different, uh, but in fact, they're they're not. So with, you know, production agriculture, we've gone where and really taken and automated almost all of our, our tasks. So, you know, the, the busiest periods are definitely, definitely busy, but they're concentrated on a couple different times during the spring and the fall. So that's been, you know, we're kind of seeing the same thing in industry just in general. So things that were heavy, lots of physical labor involved have been automated to the point where, you know, there's still a lot of oversight and management involved. But as far as the time that we spend on the farm has gotten quite a bit shorter. So there's big, there's periods of very, very busy time, but then there's long periods where there's not much really to do. How did that get you into the agriculture robotic company that you founded? What sounds like you're, you're a tinker, something's always going on. You are farming, maybe there's got to be a better way, or you're seeing what other companies are trying to put in place and you thought you had an angle on it. What's yeah, the story de- there? Definitely. The, so it, I met with the, the other founder very early on and it was actually a year where we were going to have a, it was a late fall and the, the frost was coming in and I was, I was doing a lot of this tillage, which is just, you sit in a tractor and you go back and forth. There's really not much to it. You've lowered the implement, go to the other end of the field, raise it and lower it again. And you do that over okay. and over and over again. And that was really, so we, there, I just didn't, I, I couldn't find anybody. There was no help. There was, you know, it's, it's kind of a sickening feeling when you're out there racing against nature and mm. there's no help. And that's really where I looked at automation and, you know, technology had started to evolve where, you know, the software systems, the rise of things like machine learning, artificial intelligence, and then agriculture itself is very technologically advanced. So those things kind of seem like they were at the right point to Mm -hmm. really address this labor issue. 
which is like I said earlier, you know, everything kind of is interwoven with each other. So agriculture is, we do lots of parts. We do our parts commodities, yeah, but, yeah. but doing that with less and less labor. And that's where automation comes in. But with that's, that's really where everything kind of came together where, um, you know, farmers, just like job shop owners and, you know, the, the hardworking people in the Midwest, they, they, the last thing they want to do is say, I can't do it. I need more help. So they don't really want to address the labor issue. We just find ways to double down, you know, work 20 hours a day, you know, kind of put more elbow grease into it. And that's, I, I feel like, you know, Smart Egg was part of this realization that there, there is a better ways for us to do that. And what we found, what I found in Smart Egg was one of the big, one of the big conversation points was, oh, you're displacing labor. And just like we're seeing now in manufacturing and the great resignation, it's not a matter of we're displacing labor. It's that we don't, we can't find them in the first place. So it was, it was an interesting process. I really was interested in how, you know, this technologies were coming together and how driverless technology and automation was really coming to the forefront. And to be clear, Smart Ag was the name of the company that you founded. Yeah. The last company. Correct. Yeah. What aspect then of driverless automation did you take a tractor that was off the shelf and, and add something to it? Did you have to create your own hard hardware or how tell me tell me a little more about that system? Yeah, so what we did is built an aftermarket kit that went into both the combine and the grain cart tractor. And it could mm-hmm. drive it the, the the kit was able to drive a John Deere tractor completely driverless. So it was an aftermarket system. And that's kind of falls into where the whole idea behind kinetics started to come come forward. But we specialized in the computer vision and artificial intelligence pieces, the machine learning algorithms that were in in order to drive the automated, in order to drive, do the driverless technology. Yeah. And then we had to, to so we had, had a kind of a control system that overlaid the tractor control system. So we were kind of, we were controlling that through direct interface into the into the tractor. So that's what we sold the company on. Really, it turned out that the, the core piece of the technology was our computer vision and our machine learning algorithms for path planning and those types of things. So many questions. I know you're involved with robots now. And let, let's bookmark. I want to ask you later on about how computer vision may fall into that either now or your vision of computer vision in the future. The understanding I have though from your LinkedIn is that you got frustrated in your development of hardware for your smart ag company and process of product development didn't go as smoothly as you thought it might. And from the procurement of parts gave you the idea that maybe there was an opportunity to create a company to address some of those shortcomings. Am I getting that? Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yep. Yep. What, what, so, what, so yeah. What, what are the shortcomings that you saw as a buyer of parts? Mm-hmm. So it's particularly in a startup, we had to be very, we had to be very efficient at who we had on the team, uh, mm-hmm. inside the team. So as a computer vision, artificial intelligence, machine learning, software-driven company, we we couldn't just exist on a server. 
<laughs> we also needed to be able to physically interact with this tractor. I, I wasn't able to bring in experienced mechanical engineers because I wasn't going to keep a mechanical engineer busy as much as I could an artificial intelligence, you know, computer vision engineer. So what we were doing is building out the, this, you know, the, the installation kit into this tractor. And it has all these different pieces. There's machine components for We built a, a vision system and we had an electronics company and I got the software company and they needed to do a, a housing for us. Uh -huh. And so we had a hard time finding people to machine that housing for us. And they wanted to, we wanted to have a cast mold for $250,000. And it's like, well, we can't really spend Whoa. that. Yeah. 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 And oh, hey, by the way, your, your lead time is going to be nine months to get this thing cast, molded, put together. So yeah. when, when we got to the due diligence process, when we're selling the company, I started to realize that we really didn't have much in the way of intellectual property, although we had lots of parts. We didn't have drawings. We didn't have cam files. We didn't have manu DFM. You know, we had we had gotten people who told us, "Give me the drawing," and it's like, well, I don't really have the drawing. I don't know how to do that exactly because I don't have any engineers here. So I, I couldn't find these companies that were extensions of my own team that worked and understood how fast software development and prototyping and engineering development was running. So, you know, when I exited to Raven Industries, we were working on the same, basically redoing everything that we had done in the startup phase. And they were struggling as well, trying to find, um, they were overwhelmed, their teams were overwhelmed, their engineering teams were overwhelmed, and they were having a hard time finding people. And I realized that that was kind of a common theme. In all its, I'd worked at, you know, Rocco Cons, John Deere, Egg Leader, Smart Egg, mm -hmm. Raven, and each one of those companies had the same issue. Not that they wasn't able to be overcome, but it seemed like there was a disconnect between the product development teams and these and these job shops. And usually what you'd hear is, well, that's custom. I don't do that. Or that's custom. That's going to spend, we're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to spend a ton of money on it. And I'm going to need you. So like at Smart Egg, we had piles of things that we had to order minimum quantities of 25. Well, I needed two tractors, you know, and here I had 25 parts and I just had mountains of these parts. Um, and I didn't have anything to show for it from an intellectual property standpoint. So that was kind of the idea is what would happen if we would take the engineering side and the product development, the understanding of how to manage product and bring product to market with the job shop thing and mesh those together. So, you know, our, our shop is we've got 10 full-time and half of them are in the design side and half of them in the build side. So we've got, you know, basically an engineer to a builder is what we call them, but so then companies can use us as these miniature prototyping, almost like a tool room with engineers. What I'm hearing then is you are a really good fit with a startup whose software are based. They, there's some sort of physical part of their product, but really it's more the packaging maybe for some circuit boards that are running this custom software and you, you need to house some cameras or whatever. And yeah. Brack, bracketry mounting accessories. Yeah. 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 So we've jumped ahead a little bit. You, you sold your company, you exited as they, they say in the venture capital world. So congratulations, you're a serial <laughs> entrepreneur. And now you said, 
I'm going to start Kinetic Technologies. When you started, because I think your mission has changed a little bit since when you started, what was your mission day one? I kind of didn't know what I wanted to do. So I did know that I wanted to start a company and we had this these constraints of I, I want to be by the farm and and we really want to do something for the community. So I was introduced to a young man that was in the community. I, I had obviously, you know, I, I, my other company was in Ames and we're, we're in a rural community in Northern Iowa. So I couldn't find high tech type of jobs either. So this, this, this young man, he was, you know, kind of looking at maybe leaving the community. And I thought, mm. boy, this community here has got a, a really strong mechanical engineering, manufacturing, and really that egg entrepreneurial, you know, farm kids just know how to get things done. And yeah. so we we had access to these 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 people, but I and I thought, well, there's something there. I really think that we could do this prototyping and the engineering services with the people that we have around us. So that's really how it started. The other thing was. At, the, at a, what I always kind of knew in the back of my mind when we were doing the startup was we really didn't have that piece of how do you manufacture something, give it to a customer, and then support it in the field. So I had this hmm. interesting thought of what if we would do a startup in reverse? So I know that I want to start a company. I know the culture that we want to have. I know that we want to be, you know, kind of where we want to go and where we want to be. So I thought, you know, this job shop approach would be pretty good to because we could build out the company from the point of we're selling something and supporting a customer because that was that was key to whatever I did I wanted to be you know I really wanted to be a good team member with our customers but build our customer and our support teams and then build a manufacturing capacity and then build in things like ERP systems and vendor management and then get to the point where now we figured out what product we want to build and then we turn back around and go back down the path that we'd created kind of in reverse of a normal startup. So that part of it, you know, that that combination has led us on a couple different routes to discover who we really are. Um, but, you know, starting, we, we, I, I started right off with buying a, you know, a six kilowatt fiber laser and a CNC press break and a Haas via four mil. So in all of it was software driven. So I wanted to run the manufacturing process right out of the gate using what I saw as agile or scrum methodologies. We actually mm -hmm. use Kanban through the, through the shop, but I knew that that worked really well in product development. So I wanted to institute that right up front. And I didn't know much about stuff, but I, but I all, all of a sudden was introduced to this concept of industry 4.0. And I was like, Oh, I think we're doing that. Tell me then specifically what tools allow you to have the agile manufacturing because you're you're a startup job shop you are limited in resources what pieces did you implement specifically what what software or if there was some hardware beyond those big pieces you talked about i, I want to know i'm starting shop in rural Maine. I want to duplicate what Mark did. How do I go about that? Yeah. So the first thing we did is we, as far as software systems, is picking out a industry standard drawing package. So the CAD mm -hmm. system. So we use SolidWorks. 
Um, mm -hmm. So we knew, okay, we're going to do SolidWorks. The next thing is we needed to be able to deal with inventory because I knew I'd worked with, you know, smaller companies in the ag sector. A lot of them had used like QuickBooks. And, and so they had this period of time when they're about three or five years old or sometimes 30 or 40 years old. And they said, we got to get out of that. And we need to get into yeah. an actual ERP system. So we implemented a job shop ERP system called Genius before we even knew kind of how we were doing it. So we built that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend that, but that was what we did. But so, so we had a, but that's a kind of, you know, the ERP system becomes your core data repository so that you can access that server of information that's coming in. Mm -hmm. So that was the, that was kind of the start, <coughs> excuse me. And then we, we had, of course, nesting software and cam software. So we added, we selected a cam profile for our, for our milling system. And Which then we program. I want to know uh, the details. Yeah, Fusion 360 is what we actually chose. And then with Fusion 360, then that gave us the ability to, to really process parts from, you know, from the, the drawing. Either we generate that in SolidWorks, the customer gives us, we can consume that and then send that out to the shop. But so I want to, I'm going to keep drilling in, Mark. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So Fusion, great product. A lot of great CAM products out there, though. Why did you think Fusion was the best fit for you? Ease of use was one, but cost was a big one. So we looked at mm -hmm. the, you know, if you look at the CATI, the Caddy system inside SolidWorks, that's a that's a significant cost. And, you know, we were, you know, SolidWorks is kind of an input. We, we It's open so that we can take in a lot of different mm -hmm. CAD files, yeah. consume that, and then give that back. So that was kind of an industry standard we had to work on. We really looked at managing our costs on the backside with CAM software, um, mm -hmm. you know, because we just weren't seeing the ROI with some of these really expensive CAM profiles. But and then Fusion also allowed us to add on pieces. So we started off with simple CAM and then we can look at, you know, adding CMM processes in on top of that as a, an additional add on fee to a, mm -hmm. to a pretty reasonable seat cost. And the other thing is we started to bring our machinists into the fold. So, and we wanted to give them access to the tools. So that was another consideration is we could give them fusion, a seat of fusion. And, and my machinists are actually out there with, la their, with their laptops and they're yeah. taking the design stuff, bringing it over, either taking the cam directly and get doing the machine setup or uh, analyzing the cams uh, output, making modifications to it based on fixtures and tooling. And and then and then able to to run the cam software. And what do you use for nesting software? What'd you pick? Uh, so we had one that was bad. So you learn that's the problem is experience. You know, is, is kind of a bummer. There's only one way to get it. But we started with Lantech. That was not a very good solution for us. But then we went to Sigma Nest, and so we've been. But once again, that's more of a premium product offering, but. There's a lot of tools and features inside of Sigma Nest that makes it yeah. really that it's robust. So we, you know, when it generates a when it generates a, a nest, you can you can count on that nest being correct. Yeah, and you, you have some pretty sizable dollars that you made in investment in those big pieces of equipment. Did you finance that? How how did you pay for those? How what was the structure there? So it's a it's a debt structure. I was able to use with my assets on the farm. I was able to use that as collateral to start. So I 
I did have an advantage of having the other portion of the business to help with the financing on that. Did you go with a leasing company or with a bank? Well, I went with my bank. Actually, the bank, a rural bank that I used, mm-hmm. have been using for my farming operation for years. And they've been great partners to us as a company. So, you know, Lori, our, our loan officer, has been my loan officer for 13 years. And so she she kind of watched me and they they wanted to take a risk on a local company. And they were they were excited about what we were doing. So we're really happy for their their partnership with the company. Did they make you put any money down? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, that's I wanted to do. I wanted to be in kind of a 50-50 mode. There's a couple of reasons for that. I mean, you know, I was asked when we, I, I told some people that were experienced in the industry about, hey, I think I'm going to take some of this money and reinvest it in another company. One of the things that was kind of very, well, it wasn't kind of, it was very, um, really stuck with me was one of our advisors said, make sure you have a bank involved because they provide accountability, an accountability mechanism. Mm. And I, and that was, that was something that was very important to me as a business owner is that there was, you can get into a situation where you're the CEO and you've got all the stuff and, and all of a sudden accountability starts, you kind of take to make decisions that Mm -hmm. enter in a vacuum. So having that accountability mechanism was, was, was an important first step, but that wasn't the only step that we put in place. So we did, I put my money in, in a fairly sizable amount of a down payment and then the bank came in but then they they helped us through quarterly reporting the accountability on how profitable is our is 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 the company and then also what is your strategy and how what's your structure on how we can reduce risk in the long time in the long term and beyond that I've also brought in an advisory board we it's it's a sole owner LLC so it's not a fiduciary board but just brought in some people from the industry that are really experienced to come in and just shoot ideas to. And, and then also I've asked them to provide accountability as well to make sure that we're meeting our goals and, and driving our strategy. The advisory board, you said it's an LLC. Is this a company that is out there acting? That's, that's what they're they do as a company as they act as advisors to people like yourself? No, I actually selected a couple of people that I, I respect pretty deep. One of them was the Dan Rickus, the CEO of uh, the company that we sold to, sold SmartEye nice. to. So, you know, Dan's been in a publicly traded company, did a fantastic job. I really looked up to his leadership and, and, I, and I really thought a, a lot of him. So we've selected a couple of people that, 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 and formed our own advisory board. So, and, okay. and created a structure where they, they, you know, on a quarterly basis, they come in yep. and we, they, they're treated in all, all aspects as if they were a fiduciary board, but they don't have the fiduciary responsibilities, but it's, it's creating that accountability structure so that you, you know, it's just important for everybody to have somebody to, to be accountable to. And, and that, that we wanted to create that to support our employees, but also make sure that we're doing the right thing and, you know, making sure that everything is visible and upfront and transparent. Was that an idea of your banks or was it something from day one that you thought was important and you wanted to have for yourself? Because it takes some courage because whether it's the bank or an advisory board, they're going to tell you things you don't necessarily want to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'd had, I'd had kind of bad experiences before 
before being in organizations where there wasn't accountability structures. And I think that's, you know, ah. that the, there was there was kind of a, a, a ceiling where there was nowhere else to go. You know, so if you and, and the people you human beings just do that in, in general. And I've noticed that even in myself, that's a weakness where, hey, if things are bad, maybe it's not so bad. You know, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe, yeah. maybe we can, you know, there's a good reason why, you know, profits are down or whatever, but having somebody else that can come in. And what I found too, is that the advisory board will, you know, in some, or these accountability mechanisms, they don't bring up things that are going to blindside me. There are things that I already kind of knew were going on, going, were happening. And then they can come in and shed some light in that. <laughs> and sometimes too, not just from an accountability as in a, oh, we're going to be disciplining them or. But sometimes uh-huh. accountability also helps with, hey, you know, you're doing pretty darn good. Stay on this path or to just just have this counter position to some of the things that, you know, we've we've thought about things like let's go international with the product. And the advisory board has come in and said, Mark, <laughs> you kind of know there's problems with that. You've done that before. It's like, yeah, I have. I have. Let's 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 pump the brakes a little bit on that. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's been really good. I I I'd recommend that just in general for mentorship and, and guidance and, and even in family owned businesses, you know, I'm a product of family owned businesses and I feel like my, my parents did a great job and my, and my business partner is my father-in-law on the farm, but it, but it does help to have advisors and a group of good people around you that can, that can give you good advice. Maybe at this time, we'll give a shout out to your wife, Betsy, because I'm sure that she's one of your most trusted advisors. Yes, she is definitely. So I, on paper, I own the company because somebody in a sole owner proprietorship has got to put, put their name yeah. on it. But Betsy, no, she's been, she's really the, the, you know, it's, she does the, I can, I can mechanically do things and, and I can strategically maybe move product, but she's the, the part of the company that does great things with branding and marketing. And she just kind of keeps mm. everything straight and, but I, I definitely wouldn't be able to do this without her for sure. But we're equal partners for sure in the ownership of the company. Gotcha. You started Kinetic in late 2021? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And at the time, robots weren't on your radar. <laughs> no, no, they weren't. No. They are a big part of the picture today. How did that come about? Well, so I had been approached or I approached, I don't know how that works, but uh, I've noticed that this happens a lot in job shops. You know, you kind of have these, these, you kind of come parallel with a big company and you run along next to them for a little while. And this big company had talked about doing this particular project where they wanted us to, they liked the nimbleness, the agility, and they wanted us to offload some excess capacity to the tune of like thousands of parts you know, thousands of parts a week. And I'm looking at my guys and there's like three of them. And I thought, well, first of all, where am I going to find somebody that wants to do that? And do I want that? Do I want somebody that's willing to do that? You know, this, this monotonous task over and over again, do I really, is that going to be beneficial to our culture, but maybe, or is it going to be detrimental? And the other thing was cost. And so, you know, core to Betsy and I's vision of the company is to pay people really pay people well, and then have a very, you know, elite culture where we can really aggressively pursue our customers' needs. 
But so I thought, I don't know, you know, how could I address this looking at the farm side of my life and looking at, you know, different places and the technologies that I looked at. And I thought, you know, we could probably bring a robot in to do that job. And I just mm-hmm. give that job to them and they could bring it out and bring it in. And I realized there really wasn't, there wasn't a lot of people that could do that locally. And then I started looking at what it would take for us to do it. And I thought, you know what? We're actually really well equipped to do that. So we've got high levels of engineering and we've got a high level of customization. And the more I explored the the robotics side, the more I got interested in, in being part of that as an integrator. The other thing that was really interesting to me is how robots approach them. What is an integrator? So we... So in a robotic operation, there's basically three pieces. And this is true with anything. I mean, you think about your CNC machine, right? You've got your inflow, in-process, outflow. So with a, you know, so you got your raw material, you got to do something to it, and then you got to get it out of there. A robot only does what it's told to do. So the in-process side of it. But you still need some, you still need, in order to automate something, you need to accommodate for its environment. And that's where, as you look at that, where a lot of these robotic, putting a robot into a factory falls apart, is you need somebody that can manufacture something, something somebody that, that can engineer the cell, build the whole cell, and then put the robot in, in the middle mm-hmm. of it. So that's, where, that's what it, where an integrator comes in. You know, you could buy a robot right from the robotics company, but then you got to figure out, you know, how do you put the right tooling on it? How do you convey things in, convey things out? So I, I thought, you know, there's, there's an opportunity there to, to do that, everything around the robot, to treat the robot kind of as a black box in the system, a known quantity that we can bring in, but then we can modify the environment. Hmm. Did you get the job? No, I didn't get the job. <laughs> I, did, I did not. But that's, but that was, but that was actually a realization to me. I thought, you know, we, we really had to look at, and there were several opportunities along the way um, last year as we're figuring out who we are, where I think it's a classic problem for almost all job shops is you stand there and say, you know, I'd like to do this, but it's really appealing to do these really large runs of certain parts because there's some level of comfort with having that business. But I, I looked at it from a couple of different aspects and one of them really being, okay, so these commodity parts, what they're really wanting to do, the only way you can differentiate the commoditized world is with pricing. And mm-hmm. from a commodities market is going to drive itself to the point of zero profit. And mm-hmm. I was looking at, you know, a lot of these jobs we were bidding, they were coming back saying, well, you need to do it for this. And given the price of raw material at the time, they were asking me to do it for less than scrap price. So, um, mm. uh, but I realized that there's a need to do that because, you know, you're going to get them from Mexico or China or India is going to do it for that price. But how could I provide services to the company in order to make American manufacturing? And, you know, I'd love to do it for that price. I don't know how people make money doing it. But one of the major pieces as I analyze the cost structure of our parts is our people. And I did want to have less quality people, but I do think that automation is going to helps to create competitiveness where we can have something running overnight and, and, and you're essentially just paying electricity. Yeah. I think 
I don't want us to get stuck on this, but there's a, a perception that robots take away jobs. And I was thinking of this prior to our conversation. You can go back to when there were bridge ports and you had a skilled machinist changing out every single tool. And you could look at a modern CNC machining center with a tool changer. You wouldn't call it a robot, but it sort of is. And did that take away jobs from skilled machinists? No. It, no. it allowed them to do more of what they're good at and eliminate the mundane, the, the dreary, you know, things that people really don't want to do. Right. And, and if people are looking at automation to replace labor, then they're doing it for the wrong reason. I've noticed that. I've, I've run across different clients or potential clients. And when they, they're in the back of their mind, they're trying to get rid of something someone, then I, I, to be honest with you, a lot of those projects don't work. Um, mm. You know, they're, they're in a, they're in a model where there's, there's deeper issues inside the, that they need to address that robots aren't where we do see the most, you know, efficiency gains in the places where these robots really catch ROI is when the, the company looks at it and says, well, so I can do these parts faster, but what happens if, you know, that the companies that can say, but I could take on three times as many parts and I know that I would be able to sell those parts. That's, that's where the, the automation really comes in and shines. So you're not getting rid of anybody. You're creating an environment where you have more. I think that it's so hard to hire today, let alone hire skilled people. If you want to grow as a shop, you are going to either have to hire a lot of people or you're going to have to make your existing team more efficient and free them up from jobs that could be done by robots, by automation, and you don't displace them. You simply bring in more work. You create added value for your customers, perhaps in a different way with assemblies. There, I look at automation as a way of opening up the creative freedom of people. It, it, it takes away the dehumanizing parts of the job and humanizes the jobs more. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you go into a, just think about the impression as you walk into a job or into a manufacturing floor in general. You know, when you look at, you walk in and, the, and they've got people that are running these machines or keeping the automation going inside of a factory, you really have a good impression of that organization. Mm -hmm. You say, these guys really know what they're doing. They really have state-of-the-art equipment. And you, I'm sure you'd look at the retention rates there and they'd be much higher than say, you walk, and I've, I've been in both, you know, you walk into some of these manufacturing facilities and they're using very, very old equipment and they're doing a lot of very manual, tedious, yeah. tedious tasks. And, you know, I've, I've worked with other, some people or have, have talked to people who have had, you know, 10, 20, 30% turnover in their companies. And generally there's a pretty good correlation with how much automation they have. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Do you use robots in your own plant right now on the press break or the machining center or the laser? We use it actually for welding. So oh. when we, yeah, when we get into a larger, and that's that's where we've kind of gotten a specialty is in the welding space. 
We have mm. excellent welders here. That's kind of what we're known for is our ability to weld and because of the welders that we have. And that's been a place where, you know, for every welder that comes out of a welding school, there's 20 or 30 jobs open for them. And we, we look at it as, you know, if we're going to get a batch of 10, say, of something or more, we immediately go to the get the robot and bring that in. But we do look at, and we have looked at evaluating now bigger jobs. So we currently are looking at some jobs where we could bring them as integrators, we bring our robot over and we hook it up to the CNC machine and do it for a machine tending. So, you know, having that flexibility has created a lot of opportunity. I hadn't thought about the welding. How does a robot, is it, is it moving the part and the welding tool is staying static? How does, how do robots work within the welding environment? So the welder, the, the welding robot that they use is a six-axis robot. So it's it's like mm-hmm. a six-axis arm and a yeah. welding torch. So it the, the robot can do a lot of the, you know, moving around, kind of like a, a human welder would do. That's where our product, the RT1, comes in. We do the positioning of the part itself. So the robot can go and do one, you know, say it's it, it needs to be in the A position, and it goes in and, and it welds. And the, the operator wants it to spin the part so they can access the other part of the part. So that's where we bring the positioner in. But, but yeah, the, the I mean, think of it as an arm and it goes in and you can actually train that arm where to weld. How do you train it? So we've got a couple different technologies. One is where, and all of them pretty much are the same, where you just grab the arm and you put the torch and you teach that point. And then you mm-hmm. move it to another point and teach it a second point. But the welding technology is very sophisticated now in where you can put in multi-pass, you can do weeding, you can change your, whether it's CV or pulse, you can do MIG, TIG, cold metal transfer. There's just a tons of opportunities in welding through automation. Are you primarily tack welding? Are you doing or doing a continuous watertight weld? Yeah, all the above. Yeah. So yeah. that's, yeah, and that's where the, the synergies of in kinetic technologies really start to come together. So in order to do a lot of these high-precision welds, you do have to have, it's, it all comes to the quality of your fixture. So we build the fixture and then mm. have the positioner, and then the, the welder can come in, the welding system comes in then and welds the parts. So that's kinetic technologies builds, we design the holding fixture, the work holding fixture, and then and then we, we work with a customer to go through those requirements. But that helps us to select what, what welder do you need, what technologies do you need, and then what fixture types do you need, and, and positioners. You said that once it gets to 10 pieces, you're starting to look at using the robot for welding. That seems like a really low quantity. How can you be time and cost effective with that low of a quantity? Well, a robot drives arc on time through the roof. So what we're seeing with cobot welders is it is so easy to, to it's so easy to program these parts and that the and the quality improvement that we get and the arc on time improvement is huge. So you know our best welders program the robot. They go over, they get the program going, looks good, then they start those parts and they can go over and literally I've had I I'm going to have to get a bigger exhaust fan when they start those, when they start those robots, I've never seen anything like it. It goes arc on and it does not stop. 
And we just can't, I mean, they, my welders are hardworking and they're very, very good, but I, they are, they can't get close to that arc on time. So, but, but then the welder goes out while the robot is overdoing its welding process. He goes over, gets the parts ready, maybe yeah. pulling stuff off the laser, brings it over when it's done, you know, pick it up, throw it off and start all over again. And the weld quality is like, it's like going from, it's, it, it is like, it is like CNC welding. So the weld quality is amazing. You can, and, and it's repeatable. Every single weld is the same. So with other clients, we'll go in and we'll actually cut the welds. We, we change the, we manipulate the, the settings on the welders so that we've got really good quality beads that are getting laid with specific mm-hmm. standards. Mm. Do you have any videos of this on YouTube or on your website or anything? It would be really cool to see the whole process you know, maybe a time-lapse type thing from, I I would be fascinated watching that. Yeah, we've got it actually on LinkedIn. I'll, I'll forward that to you, but we've got, we've got one of the, yeah. so the RT1 and that was, I don't know what we did. We did quite a few of those, but yeah, we'll, um, po- we'll, we'll post it on the show notes. And so people can have a link to watch yeah. the video. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. But it is, it, it is impressive. I mean, we, we can burn a lot of wire in a short period of time using robots. It sounds like as in anything, it's the repetitions and you perhaps because you have become a integrator, you might use the robot when it's on the edge because you want to gain the experience and, and the reps, because the more reps you do, the more edge cases that you come across and the better you will be as an integrator, as well as in your, your own shop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, there, it starts to be a mindset change as well. So you start to look at what is our process and does that in process include automation and, and where would that really help out either in quality or safety or opportunity cost for automation? What about the welder who all they want to do is, sit there and put nice beads on all day and well, change change up a part every once in a while. Yeah. Well, that, that and what we see is that th- they're pretty happy to give up the parts where they have to do a monotonous number of parts. And that's, you know, the robot just doesn't care. I mean, it doesn't need to have a right. welding helmet on. It doesn't, it doesn't get hot. So, you know, our welders, they, I, there's a couple things I think that are important. One is that they can still do that. They're, they're still in control of the weld. They're still getting it just exactly how they want it. And what I found mm-hmm. is that not just any guy off the street can walk in and pull these welds out like, like our welders can. So they still get to do the things that they want to do. But on the other hand, they, they, you know, they, 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 they don't want to do that all day long on the same part. So that the second piece is you can take more inexperienced people, bring them into the situation and they can sit and watch what the expert mm-hmm. welder is set and watch an expert weld over and over and over again. So I think that's an important part too, is we're seeing that, you know, the welding knowledge can be transferred both to the robot, but also to other people. I've learned a lot watching how they set the robots up, looking through the settings and then just watching it do its weld process. So there's a lot of interesting nuances to automation as we start getting that more mainstream. And I think every shop owner's dream is to have their own product that they can sell, manufacture. You've 
created a product. What is that all about? Well, so with the integration piece, we had a relationship with one of the welding companies, the, the cobot welding companies. And they had said, we see a problem with, you know, we got back and said, hey, this arc on time is really high. Well, we started, we talked to them and then we also went to a couple different clients. What we saw is that we weren't seeing that the part flow was faster. The arc on time when it was on was higher, but they'd still have to wait for the part to cool down, take it off, load it back up in the fixture, maybe let the robot do a couple tacks or they would manually tack it. And then they do the finished weld. Well, you look at that process and you're really not, it's not increasing your arc. It's really not increasing productivity much more than the manual. Uh, labor. So we said, what would happen? And this is ridiculous. I, I mean, sometimes I just go, I don't really know why we're the only ones that do it. Maybe we're just ridiculous. And we're going to figure out why nobody's done it in the past because we can't sell any of them. But we just did, thought, well, what, let's do an AB rotary positioner where the robot can do its job on one side. And then on the other side, the the, the welding operator can load the fixture and then the robot takes and runs the fixture and does its tack and final weld while you're pulling the other one off. So, <laughs> so that was where the product came from. It's pretty simple, but in order to pull that off, we had to have very, very tight tolerances. So the robot goes back to the same point, the same datum point, regardless, it, it doesn't go back right. to the vision. It doesn't, you can add technology to, to make it so that it can, but a lot of the cobot welders in general, they're coming in and they're going to a specific data point. So we had to, in order to do that, where you could do A, B, we had to be within five thousands of repeatability from side to side. So we had to have zero backlash gearboxes and servo motors and get into the robotics. And But our shop, the engineering shop, we were able, you also have to have very, very small amount of runoff on the table. So you don't have it, you know, crowning in the middle. So we designed and patented and, and machined the surfaces so that it's a flat surface, sub 5,000 tolerance on that, and then very, very repeatable. Mm. So we actually increased it to four, so it's a quadrant positioner. But that that takes a lot of the integration complexity out of the welding system. So you know you, the fixture on a fixed table isn't too bad, but then you get into these industrial robotic cells, and a lot of that complexity comes in the positioning systems. So we kind of straddled the two different ends, the two different worlds and said, well, if you don't really need an industrial robot, but it's your parts are too big, because that's another way that we deal with larger parts is we can just spin them. Or if you need, if you want, if you got higher volume and you want to increase your productivity, you can use our RT1. That's the name of your product, the RT1. Yeah. Yep. The RT1. It's real. Yeah, we, I, I, I maybe need another marketing guy. Rotary table. First one. (laughs) Gotcha. Gotcha. And as an integrator, do you have a territory? Do you service people, work with people all over the country, or are you tied into the Iowa area? What, what's your, how's that work? We pretty much anywhere in the United States will be an integrator for, and we've, we, we prefer to do close in integration. But once again, you know, technology helps us out with a lot of things. So we've got, we've worked with another company called Olus that gives us remote, remote access to our integration cells. So we can, we can literally go in, move the robot around. We've got webcams that can look at the, the robot. We can wow. move the robot around, clear codes, pull log files, 
right from our computer. So that that helps close that gap. A lot of and then there are a lot integrate. So customer support is tough. So yeah, yeah, but we bring technology in to help with that. Almost sounds like with the remote surgery. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't want to do that yet with the system, but yeah. This has been fascinating for me, and I've learned a lot. I, I have one question that I think I know the answer to. However, let's double check. You've mentioned cobot. What is the difference between a cobot and a robot? So a cobot is a collaborative robot, and it's intended to be work side by side with a human. The the original, if you think in you know, for GM industrial robotics, those robots are made for speed and payload. So they are very dangerous. You can't be you without safety guarding. You you can't right, right, move right. be next to those robots. The cobot actually has force torque sensors on it. So if that arm moves over and it hits somebody, it, it'll it'll sense that it's touched something and it'll stop. So it's built inherently safe to 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 stop. But you know, like we've gone through training with Universal Robots or Cobot Provider, they said you can put a knife on the end of a cobot and it becomes un it becomes not safe again. So, but but it's it's built so that you can't you know you you can work right next to it. Gotcha. Again, this has been a lot of fun. Anything we didn't bring up, you would like to get out there? Paperless parts. (laughs) (laughs) Go for it. Yeah. No. So one of the major problems, I mean, major problems I had early on with the job shop is costing. So, Mm -hmm. you know, because there, nobody comes out and says, hey, here's what the established industry labor rates are for laser cutting. And this is how you charge by a part. And especially when they're custom, every part, you know, the market value of the part is unknown. You know, either it doesn't exist and there is no market value or the customer says, yeah, well, the guy down the road's got 50% off. So I, that was one of the, that, I mean, I spent a lot of time early on in the job shop really, you know, cause it core to our company values is, you know, integrity, and quality and servant leadership. And so it really bothered me when a customer asked me, how did you come up with this price? And it was like, well, I have this Excel spreadsheet and I kind of sort of did this and that. And I don't, I don't, but at the end of the day, I don't know. So I literally, I was like, oh man, I was in a bit of a moment of despair. And I just Googled, how do you cost laser parts? And you guys came up at the top of the list. And we paperless parts, you talked about the IT infrastructure, the how do you do what enables our software driven manufacturing? It starts with paper and no joke, it starts with paperless parts. So we take that in, and the first time a customer interacts with us, they have a very professional front end where they see this is my part. We provide expedites, and the expedites drives the Kanban system. So uh, we it works great. We've got 15 days where customers are happy with that. They, that's a, that's an industry that that's, that's pretty fast according to some of our customers, but then they can get all the way to an expedite of same day. And that Mm. pricing structure drives the prioritization through manufacturing. So it's paperless has been a huge part of our whole technology ecosystem and just fits in perfectly there. Good to hear. Yeah. Anything else? No, I don't think so. That was the big one. Okay. Well, listening to you makes me wish I still had a shop. 
so <laughs> I could get a robot or a cobot. I probably want to get a cobot because I don't want to kill anybody on the floor and see what I could do. It, and I'm sure the technology is advancing so fast. And if I had looked at them two or three years ago, there's probably an exponential leap in the capabilities and the, the fact that it seems like it's so easy to teach it how to weld man that would have that would have changed the game at the shop and i think in the sheet metal with your the new automatic tool changers on the press brakes you could whip the parts through then go over to the robot you save the program if you make a scrap piece or you got to run another piece through the shop it's we're starting to really reduce the setup time and that's typically what drives everything is you, you if you've got a longer running job you you're not able to break down the machine now you can mm -hmm. and this is this is the future and the future is now yeah yeah and that's what i see the same thing jay i you know their industrial robots are not new they're, they're actually technology has been there for a long time I think, and this is our customer base, the kinetic technology customer base. The way I see it is, you know, you've got these huge industrial robots that are running, say, an automotive company. You know, yeah. what I want to do is target and provide and capabilities to all of the people that are providing all of the parts that flow into that factory and do it in the United States. And I think that the way that we do that is we, we produce more parts per hour of labor and we pay our people yes, yes. well and we value our workforce, but we're as productive as these other company countries that are producing parts just basically on the backs of, of zero cost labor. Mark, thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your journey and congratulations on, on the success that you had at Smart Ag and, and sticking with farming. I think farming is, is, in the U.S. is just as important as the manufacturing. We need to always make sure we have our own food source. I would ask the listener, when is the last time you took a hard look at, I'll say, cobots? And what area in your shop, perhaps it's quality, sounds like welding is certainly an option, machine tending. I think that there is such an opportunity and you don't know what you don't know until you try it. And what would it take to bring a cobot into your facility, give it a shot, get those reps initiated so that you are ready when that perhaps larger production quantity job comes in that you wouldn't consider now. You have this, you have the knowledge and the experience of working with robots, cobots, and it allows you to, as Mark said, more parts per labor hour. I think this is a win all the way around. And it's what we need to be doing to make American manufacturing kick ass. So, and Mark, thanks for your time. And until next time, keep those lasers cutting, those spindles turning, and those cobots welding. All right. Enjoy your day. Thanks for listening to the Job Shop Show podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review on Apple Podcasts. 
Not only do I read every single one, it also helps me understand what content matters most to you. Thanks again for listening to The Job Shop Show.